So we're continuing now in a series of sermons that started a few weeks ago uh, called Learning to See. And the story, the account of Jesus leading Peter, James, and John up the mountain of transfiguration away from the world, this space of spiritual perception where they could see uh, this great epiphany, this revealing of Christ's uh, divinity before them, so that when they went back down the mountain, they were able to live differently. Um, our hope is that we can learn to see more clearly the light of Christ, the, the transfiguring light of Christ around us, within us, in one another, and in the world, uh, such that we can live differently. The goal within that central section of the Gospel of Mark is to learn to see. Two stories bracket the account uh, of that middle section where the story of the transfiguration has prominence. Those two stories that bracket that account are stories of blind people that Christ heals so that they can see clearly. Uh, so that's our goal. That's what we're trying to do. Last week we talked about holy places. Uh, when we go to a holy place, it is in a sense a journey up that mountain a place where we can be and commune with the Lord such that we are purified, illumined, and eventually perfected. Remember, that's the pattern of worship. When we come in, we confess our sins, purification. We're illumined by the word. We come to the table and experience union or perfection with God at the table. It's also the pattern of the gospel. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan at the beginning. Um, entering into this life of purification for us. Uh, we see the story of the account of the transfiguration at the center of the gospel, where his light illumines the disciples with spiritual knowledge and insight. And then finally, at the end, through his death, the perfection of his baptism, through his resurrection, he shares life with us. So this is, this is a really basic pattern to what we're doing as Christians. And we want to learn to see more clearly. Today, we're going to think about holy things. And whereas last week we read about the construction of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, God's instructions for that, which are very particular in the designation of holy space, this week we're going to hear about those objects that God had placed within the tabernacle. Holy things. So I invite you to listen carefully and listen well to Exodus chapter 25, and we will be picking up in verse 31 and going to the end of the chapter. Uh, this uh, bears instructions for the golden lampstand that is placed in the tabernacle. But of course, earlier, the Ark of the Covenant is spoken of, the table which will bear the bread of the presence. Um, and then he continues with the bronze altar, and other particular objects. But by way of example, here's the accounting for the golden lampstand. The Lord says that you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. 
So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it. The whole of it, a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it. And the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them before the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us, let us pray. O Heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, treasury of goodness and giver of life, come and abide in us. Cleanse us from every stain and save our souls. A good one. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning I'd like to talk about holy things. And I'll start with a story. Uh, you know, much of what I've been thinking about and what we've been speaking about come from a class that I'm taking. And some of my classmates uh, come from a tradition that is different from ours, from the Orthodox Church. And I have a classmate who is a priest in the Orthodox Church, the Coptic Orthodox Church, um, which kind of has its center in Egypt. Uh, Father Michael Soriel is a priest in uh, serving a parish in New Jersey. He's kind of lived a lot of places <coughs> in the United States, but presently he serves there. And during our conversations in class, as they revolved somewhat around holy things and, and the miraculous in the world, he shared an accounting of some of this with us. He says that he knows a man who was one of his really uh, best friends when he was growing up. As children, they grew up together. And uh, so that he's been in their home many times, and they in his. And he said that as they grew up, uh, his friend had a son. Uh, excuse me, his, his friend had a nephew that... Um, was diagnosed about the age of eight or nine with cancer. And after they did what they could for this boy, medically, they came to a point where they did not think, medical professionals did not think they could do anything else. So they said essentially, barring some sort of miracle, um, he, will, he will die soon. Uh, and as it turned out, uh, a miracle did happen. Uh, the boy was in uh, his parents' home and was walking through the bedroom where they had, remember last week we were talking about holy spaces. It is common for Orthodox Christians to have a space in their home where you might find icons. I brought one in this morning that I picked up in Bethlehem last year, an icon of the nativity. Uh, they would have a number of different icons hanging uh, they would have a place where they could offer incense, where they would pray their daily prayers and hourly prayers throughout the day, a place where they may read scripture 
It is a holy place, and it is filled with holy things. And one of those icons, and I, if I remember correctly, it was the, the icon of, of the Pantocrat, or Jesus, the, the all-powerful. He holds the book of life in one hand and extends a sign of blessing with the other. I have one of these in my study, or uh, in the Sunday school classroom. And the boy was walking through his parents' room, past this holy place, and he looks up and he sees one of the icons, and suddenly his parents from the other room hear a scream, a piercing scream from their son. And so they come rushing towards him, and he comes rushing out of the room, and he says, they say, what, you know, what's wrong? And he said, the icon was watching me. It was looking at me. And they go into the room to see, and from this icon, oil is beginning to drip. Oil, which in a sign, is a sign in the scriptures of God's healing, of God's anointing, of God's blessing. You know, the Messiah, Messiah means the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one of God. He's anointed. We see that happening in his baptism with the Spirit. So oil's dripping from this icon, and this boy has seen this icon look at him and has had some kind of an experience which honestly frightened him. You remember Peter, James, and John atop the mountain. On their faces, yeah? Uh, there is a holy fear. The mysterium tremendum at Fascinans, um, the boy is fearful, causes him to tremble, and yet there's this fascination. His parents want to come and see. There's an encounter with the holy that is happening in this home. They take the boy, and he has scans later, and there's no sign of cancer anywhere in his body. And my friend, Father Michael, knows this family, knows this boy, and has been in this home and seen this icon. For months, oil dripped from this holy image of Christ. People would come and collect it. They would hang pictures of their own upon the... It gets even stranger. They would hang either images or icons that belonged to them upon this wall... And they too would begin to emit oil. But he said if some, you know, a picture of a person or not an icon was hung on this wall, they would not. Make of that what you will. But the miraculous occurred. There was an encounter here. There was, God has used a material object in the world to be um, a mechanism for sharing His grace with others and bringing healing. And so what I want us to think about just for a second um, is maybe another way of thinking about climbing the mountain of transfiguration, being changed, and then entering back into the world. I want to put that in slightly different language and come at it from another angle so that maybe this connects a bit more. You know, there are different ways of viewing the world around us different ways of understanding what all this stuff is. One of those, and the most common in our culture, is that of secular materialism. Uh, it is an atheist perspective that thinks the world is only the stuff that you can touch and see and feel. There's not a spiritual reality that is behind or undergirding or above or within the material world. There's only things... There's not God. And because of that, essentially, humanity becomes God. Because the world is there for us to manipulate and make of it what we will. 
you could get into very long description of that philosophical framework. But I think all of us can find within our own hearts the ways that we've been shaped by that perspective. Even though we say, okay, we are Christians, we trust in Jesus, often we live our day-to-day lives in a secular fashion. As if God is, you know, someone that we encounter on Sundays. Right? That we do at church, but then we go back to our regular life in the world that is somehow distinct or different or separate. Instead of living in a thin place, like we talked about last week, we live with this thick barrier between heaven and earth if we think of heaven much at all. Of course, there's another way of understanding uh, life in the world, and that is a consideration of the world in religious terms, but I'm using religion here in a negative way. Um, Religion being the practice, the formal practice of interacting with the world in a way that manipulates material things so that we might also manipulate God. It is, in effect, idolatry. If we carry out certain things well enough or in the right way, then basically we get what we want. We get salvation. We get to go to heaven when we leave this material world. Uh, it's, it's essentially focused on me and is a selfish endeavor. And I think if you're like me, you can probably also recognize that somewhere deep down, a lot of what you do and a lot of what uh, you engage in as a person of faith is self-serving. Making sure that you're taken care of. That you're going to get what you hope to get, the good things and not the bad. And that hopefully if you live that well enough, even your life in this world will be probably a little better than it would have been otherwise. I don't want us to be atheists and secular materialists, even though we certainly face temptations in that direction. I also don't want us to be religious persons in the negative sense, doing all of this to try to manipulate God to be good to us. That's not the way of faith, actually. The reality of things is that God has done for us already what we couldn't do for ourselves, that we are already forgiven, and that what we get to do now is live in a grateful response to what God has done. It's really the only way that you can serve God well in the world. Every other religion attempts to do things right enough in this life, even serving others, even acts of love and charity and blessing, so that they can get what they want to get, salvation. Christianity is completely the opposite. God gives us the gift of salvation, and then we get to live gratefully in response to that. We can truly live as Christians in a way that is not selfish, that is not religious. What I want us to aim for is a way of inhabiting the world and understanding the material world around us and our place in it uh, in a way that is um, constitutive of a sacramental worldview. It would see the world around us as epiphany. It would see the world around us as God's means and way of connecting with us. And certainly we can talk about the beauty of the mountains and the trees and the wind and the sun shining and the light um, uh, beaming upon us, you know, and think of these moments of great beauty that transcend some of the mundane reality. But I want us to have eyes to see all things, all the world as it's given to us, created good by God, and the very place where God wants to meet us spiritually. 
This is the way that it's been from the beginning. And I want to show you how in Scripture God is constantly taking the material world and using it as the means by which He ministers to us, connects with us, lives with us, among us, works upon us. And this list, I mean, is as exhaustive as Scripture itself. But let's just kind of go through it really quickly. So, so let's think of, I'm just going to start with um, the rainbow. The promise of God set in the heavens after the flood has come. After uh, Noah and the ark has come to settle upon Mount Ararat. And the, the dove goes forth and brings back an object. An olive branch is a sign of peace. And then they look and they see the bow set in the heavens. And we see this as an object of beauty in the sky, but in ancient culture, they would have understood this as like a bow that you might use in war. And God has taken it and set it aside. It's now pointing up, not down. Think about a rainbow. It's meant to draw them now towards God's presence, not to be aimed in destruction. But think of a rainbow. It's water and light, isn't it? Refracted now in great beauty. The material objects of this world, created things, used now by God to draw us into communion with Him and to assure us of His promises to us. Or think, let's skip ahead a little bit. Let's think of Moses on the mountain of God, right? The same Moses who appears with Jesus atop the Mount of Transfiguration. The same Moses who receives the law, who received the word that we read this morning about how to lay out the tabernacle and the items and objects within it, the holy things. This Moses is tending sheep on the mountain that belong to his father-in-law. And what does he see? A bush, a material object in the world, and yet it is a holy thing. It burns with the divine light of God. The fire, the glory of God's presence is in somehow filling, somehow inhabiting, somehow being revealed as an epiphany here in this place, in this object. It draws him in, shining light. It, it, it draws him and beckons him close, giving warmth. But it also warns him not to get too close. The mysterium tremendum et fascinans. Take off your shoes. This is holy ground. And yet come near that God, God wants to speak with you. Material object in the world. He did, it wasn't just a voice, was it? It wasn't just a feeling interiorly given. God meets him in the world through the created order in a particular way. Or think of how God then sends Moses into Pharaoh's courtroom. Pharaoh who serves other gods for this sort of combat, divine challenge between the representatives of the gods and he sends Moses not with like magic powers or something but with a material object yes a staff a staff that will be a sign of God's presence with him he casts it down it turns into a what serpent what sat upon Pharaoh's headdress a serpent here's the serpent which swallows up Pharaoh's serpents which shows here that God the God uh, who has revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, I am who I am, is superior to this other God worshipped in Egypt. A physical object that takes another physical shape in the world, created reality, gathered in by God to convey something to us and to demonstrate his presence and power in the world. Think of, well, David uh, conquering the giant Goliath, who was understood in the ancient world, 
Giants were, were understood to be this amalgamation of um, fallen angels and humanity that ritualistically uh, entered into the world and were pretty, pretty bloodthirsty folks. So David goes, and he doesn't just fall over dead. No, he takes material objects, five smooth stones, and these are the objects with which God conquers this demonic figure. Think then about Jesus. <clears throat> Water from the Jordan. There's some right there. You know? Water from the Jordan River. Jesus is baptized and sort of flips things. It's not that the water made Jesus holy or pure. He was. Jesus made the water thus. Jesus purified the water so that when we're baptized in water, this element in the world, we are washed clean. We participate in his baptism. Uh, there are instances where Jesus heals people with a touch because Jesus has a body, a human one. But certainly there are moments when Jesus takes material reality and uses that. There's a blind man that Jesus comes upon and he takes mud, he spits in it and makes a paste, and then he wipes it upon the man's eyes and wipes it off and he can see. He's taken material reality and brought it into this moment of healing for this man such that he can, again, see if there's no other precedent for understanding the material world or objects within it as means that God can use to give us sight, this is it. I'm, I'm inviting you to see the possibility of material things participating in the restoration or giving of your sight to be able to see God, to see the transfiguring light of Christ. Here it is. Jesus takes material reality and, and uses it to bring sight to the person. Um, Jesus is always taking those material things that we give, transforming them and returning them back to us. Uh, when there was a crowd of 5,000, you know, he easily could have just said, I'm going to take away your hunger pangs, make your stomachs feel better. He could have done that, right? But no, he said, does anyone have anything to eat? And the little kid brings him five loaves and two fish. And he takes this the material world and multiplies it and transforms it when it's given to Christ then it becomes a blessing to all means of communion think of Zacchaeus after Jesus comes and visits him in his house Zacchaeus then gives fourfold back to those what he had stolen he returns the money that he had taken a sign of value and material wealth in the world and returns that to those to whom it belonged. Think of Jesus at the, um, at the road to Emmaus as he walks with the two disciples. The day of his resurrection, he, he sits down, he tells them of the scriptures, but that wasn't enough. It wasn't until he broke the material bread and gave it to them that what happened? Their eyes were opened. Over and over and over again, God gives us spiritual sight through our material eyes to see him to know him, and to see the world around us more clearly. Um, you know, in worship we have water, sign of our baptism. We have wine or juice or bread, moment of communion. Things that we offer to God, 
He transforms them and returns them to us as a means of drawing us into His presence in life. We have here in this space a cross on this wall, a Celtic cross. Feel free to look at it. Right? The cross there with the circle in the middle reminding us of eternal life. We have a cross here in the front. You know, Protestant churches are fairly devoid of material objects and symbols, but we have a cross here. Um, glass taken from the material world, colored and then used or, or, or drawn together with light, like a rainbow, to refract all these different colors. Red, which reminds us of the blood of Christ. Purple, which reminds us of Christ's royalty. Blue, which is, reminds us of the heavenly and spiritual realities. Yellow or gold, to remind us of the supreme value of the cross, the supreme value of the life that we're now given to share in Him, the life that Christ has offered up for us. Here in this space, um, we have Bibles that we open. This one was given to me by my parents when I was 16 or 20, one of those, and you can see, you know, it's seen its fair share. I would like to say this is just because I read it so much, but, it, you know, this is because it goes in my bag and back out. It's just been worn down. Um, I have an object here that a prayer rope. Um, this comes from the Orthodox tradition. It's made of wool. Reminds me of the Lamb of God. It has a cross here at the bottom. Uh, these tassels are meant to remind us of both the fringe of the garment, right? But they're also used rightly um, or intended to be used to wipe tears of repentance when you pray. Uh, there are different sections. There are three beads here, which remind one of the Trinity. And these are blue, but often they're red, reminding us of Jesus' uh, blood shed for us, the blood of the Lamb. Uh, this is a material object that I don't worship. It's a prayer rope. But it is something that as I pray a prayer and I move from section to section, it allows me to focus my attention more clearly. It allows me to um, commune with God. And it's not incidental. Every, every aspect of it has a symbolic purpose and meaning behind it. Think of the oil of anointing that we might use for healing or in a service. All of these things, material objects... You know, most of us think of the world as like something separate from God, but God wants to take the world and use it as the means of communion with you and me and us. There is a danger, however. There is the possibility of idolatry. There's the possibility that one worships then the icon and clings to the icon that emits oil, not using it as a, as a passage or a means of a conduit to God's grace, a means of God's a sign of His presence in the world, but use it as a, as a thing that you can cling to and separate and use religiously as a way to control or to get what we want from God. There's that danger. And this is where worship comes in, what we're doing now. Uh, worship is a training as we offer everything in the world up to God, so that Christ can transform it and give it back to us. Just like the loaves and the fishes. Just like the water from the earth. Just like especially the bread of communion and the cup that is poured. We bring it, we offer it to God in the oblation and give thanks for it. And then Jesus is the one who makes it his body and blood for us by the Spirit. Um, I want you to think as we go through our worship service, 
how the different pieces allow you to offer yourself to God. And this is going to train you how to use objects and materials, uh, material things in the world. So first we come in and we sing praise. We offer our attention to God. There's a shift. We've been worried about getting dressed or getting the, the kids here on time or whatever, scrambling around. But then we enter into worship and our, our attention changes. We offer that to God as a means of communion. We come to the prayer of confession where, here's the miracle, we offer the worst of ourselves, our sins, to God. If we keep our sins to ourselves, they become death for us. But when we, here's the miracle, when we offer our sin to God, it actually paradoxically becomes the means of communion with Him. It's the place where He then brings healing to us. We offer even that. Uh, we come, we offer words spoken, uh, words read from the printed page, from the Scriptures. We offer those up, and God, by the Spirit, transforms both their speaking and our hearing. Uh, we bring our money sign of material value in the world, and we place it in the plates, and we give it to God, and it's transformed then into communion with Him. You remember the rich young ruler who says to him specifically, you've done everything, but now one thing remains, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me, and he went away sad. His money actually became a barrier between him and God. The material wealth he had was separation, but when rightly offered, it becomes the means of Communion and discipleship. Uh, we bring bread and wine. We offer it up again. Uh, in the same way, we bring our fears. We bring our worries. We bring our hopes and dreams and struggles and people that we care about. We offer them up in prayers of the people. We offer them up for healing. We bring the world to God. What I want you to think about this morning is how, one, worship can train you in how to rightly be freed from idolatry. By worshiping the true God, we aren't tempted in the same way to worship things. And with that caveat, I want you to now think about, you've, you've identified a holy place. I hope in the last week you've gone there, hopefully every day perhaps, and prayed that prayer that we prayed at the beginning of the sermon. Um, o Heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, who art every present and fill us all things. Treasure of goodness, giver of life, come and abide in us, cleanse us from every stain, and save our souls, O good one. Have you just been going to that place, praying that prayer? I want you to now think, and you may already have in mind, what are some particular objects that you might be able to have in that place that would, again, remind you of God's presence, to lead you into God's life, not as something you worship separately in an idolatrous fashion, but as a means of communion with God. What could you take to that place and offer to Him, asking that they may be a means of communion? I have in my study a, a number of icons. That doesn't make me a very good Presbyterian, uh, but hopefully a better Christian. Uh, I, I do have a prayer rope. I have a Bible. What are some things in your life that have become significant to you? I brought a cross back from Israel and gave it to each of you. And I'm, don't, I'm under no illusion that that needs to be a special item for you. But Terry Sanford had it and was speaking with a friend who was in strife and grief. And she happened to have it in her pocket. And she, and she just gave that cross to this woman. And she broke down in tears and she still carries that cross. It has become a holy thing, a reminder of God's presence with her. What, what, what's something 
perhaps. You, you know, talk with me about it. If you'd like to um, kind of consecrate something to the Lord or offer it up for his use, I'm, I'm delighted to share that with you. But I, I think when you go to this place, up this holy mountain, and you encounter holy things, the possibility there remains for you to be drawn further into the life of God so that you can see more clearly. They, they perhaps can be a salve for your eyes that God can use to bring the miraculous into your life. When we bring the world to God, it becomes a means of communion with God. When we snatch at apples and keep them to ourselves, it brings death. Let's walk with Jesus up the mountain of life. Light and transfiguration, that his glory might burn here in us. Because you know what the true icon is? Icon is just a word that means image. And who is made in the image of God? You and me. The goal is actually for you to become the holy object. The material thing in the world that bears the presence of God and burns with the fire and glory of the Lord without being consumed. It's you, actually, in the end, that is the goal. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.